0: Good morning. We have been in the gospel according to John for over two and a half years. Can you believe it? John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives you I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid, says the Savior who has overcome the world. So shall our hearts be troubled when we hear Uh, And dwell upon the words of Christ. Surely the word of God brings comfort and fortitude to our hearts and make the love of God sensible and bright to our souls. So may the life-giving truth this morning give you hope and give Christ the honor and praise that he rightly deserves. So with that said, let me pray for us and we'll dive into the text. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, the God of comfort, we now plead with you that you will do great and marvelous things in this hour. I pray that you will make your presence sensible in the midst of this congregation. And I pray that you provide timely help and comfort to the saints in Christ. And I pray that you will do the supernatural work of enlightening the darkened minds and uh, and resurrected dead hearts of those who are apart from Christ, O Lord. Today we have come before you to hear your word preached. I pray that Christ will be set forth as an all-sufficient Savior to every single soul present in the sanctuary, we pray. Amen. Today is July 2nd, 2023. We're at the exact half point of this year. This is the 183rd day of this year. We have... 182 days behind us and 182 more days ahead of us. We are at the half point of this year. During a long-distance race into the second half, where the last third of the race, even though this usually happens to me in the first 400 yards of the race. Runners uh, sometimes hit the wall. They they have been running for so long, so far, that their bodies cannot access the, the fields in their body very easily, and so they begin to slow down. I heard it's an awful feeling. Have you reached that critical point in the race of living in 2023? How has this year been for you? The irresistible and the sovereign providential will of God has been unfolding slowly and steadily one day at a time. Has it been smooth sailing for you or has it been hills of difficulty and valleys of the shadow of death? So I knew I was going to preach today and I had written an entirely different sermon for today and I finished it quite early. It was a rough sermon, leaning more toward the astonishing and convicting side. And the first sentence of that sermon was this was going to be a rough sermon. Then, Then I attended our small group and then I spoke to members of the church, some members of our church, and then I thought about what I know about some of you. And so I reached the conclusion if the purpose of the sermon is to glorify Christ, build His church, and give timely spiritual help for the saints in the way they live. Then perhaps another sermon is needed. An astonishing, uh, uh, admonishing, and convicting sermon can come uh, on any other day, any day really. A comforting and encouraging sermon might be more appropriate at this juncture of the year. Proverbs 15:23, "To make an apt answer is a joy." To a man and a word in season, how good it is. And so this sermon is about facing affliction and grief. There's never a wrong season of speaking about affliction because every season is a season of affliction and grief for some people in the church. There's never a shortage of ways to address grief because the Bible has no shortage, it is full of texts helping, comforting, and promising to believers great things in the midst of their grief. Let me tell you just a bit more, a few more things about the sermon before getting into the text. You need to know, first of all, that this sermon is not a topical sermon. In other words, I am not just talking about suffering uh, based on life experience or general scriptural wisdom. I am talking about suffering by looking at a particular text of the Bible. So there will be heavy exegesis and interpretation in this sermon. You should know that is a good thing. This is not a weakness or a shortcoming or an inefficiency of the sermon, and that is not a hindrance to facing grief. Exegeting and interpreting the Bible is never irrelevant, but always helpful, even for people who are steep in grief. You should also know That this sermon is not an intellectual exercise. No sermons ought to be intellectual exercises. A sermon about dealing with grief has even less luxury of indulging the mere intellect and neglecting the real issue. We're considering real afflictions with real impact upon the souls of real people. We've got no time to waste on trivial rambling and abstract discourses on grief. The sermon is not meant to stimulate your intellect, but bring biblical hope and comfort to the struggling and suffering saints. You should also know that this sermon is not a counseling session, which means I cannot listen to you, but you have to listen to me for a 50, some 50 minutes. I hope I'll be interesting and helpful enough to make this one-way communication less miserable and more desirable to your ears. It also means I cannot possibly address particularly every single situation present in this room. But I am addressing every single person as situation in this room altogether. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about preaching. It is quite astonishing to find that in expounding the scriptures, you're able to deal with a variety of differing conditions altogether in one service. That is what I mean by saying it saves the pastor a lot of time. If he had to see all these people one by one, his life would be impossible. But in one sermon, he can cover quite a number of problems at one and the same time. So remember, just because I didn't say your name, or call out the specific trials you are going through. I will not do that to anyone today in this sermon. That does not mean I am not speaking to your situation. Quite the opposite. If you have known me and we have spoken at length or in passing about your distress or the distress of another brethren in Christ, then most likely I wrote this sermon with you specifically in mind. So feel free to read yourself into this sermon. You to know that this sermon is not necessarily going to make everything magically get better. If you have ever preached or taught any Bible study at home or at church, or if you have ever evangelized to anyone, you surely know how powerless our words are to change someone, far less a thorny situation that has been the source of endless, seemingly endless grief. So the sermon does not guarantee everything will be smooth sail once you get out of this church, and you will never feel the bitter sting of sorrow anymore. But at the same time, you should also bear in mind, we're not here to listen to me, are we? Though this sermon may not heal you, the word of God you hear today— Will so expect God to do great things today. And finally, you need to know the sermon is designed to bring God's word to bear in your life. I want to take a text in the Bible and apply it to your life and your situation. I didn't say the words that that we're about to read, God did. I'm a mere messenger, I'm trying to explain and impress the text deeply in your mind. I pray that you will listen attentively, prayerfully, and well. And if you are helped, give glory to God. John Calvin, he wrote in a commentary on the book of Psalms, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont or prone to be agitated. So now, shall we put in focus these distracting emotions and hear the words of hope from the God of comfort? So if you have the physical copy of the Bible with you, please turn to the 34th Psalm. We will be in verse 19. The 34th Psalm, verse 19. Psalm 34 verse 19 let me read the text for you and please pay close attention to every verse because this is the word of God many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all this verse has two halves and so I want to draw your attention to two things from this text first the problem It amazes me just how the Bible always so simply yet profoundly describes our problem with no sugarcoating nor exaggeration, just the problem as it is. And secondly, the promise. Great problems require great solutions, and the great solution we have today before us is the great promise from God. So two simple points for you this morning, the problem and the promise. So let's begin with point number one, the problem. What is the problem in view in the text? It's the first half of our verse, verse 19. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. It's a short sentence, but it's a sentence with great depth and great sympathy. Let's focus on three things in this half of the verse. Number one, consider who it is that the psalmist speaks of here. Consider who it is that the psalmist speaks of here. It is the righteous, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Well, what about Romans 3.10? Right? None is righteous, no, not one. And so I guess this verse doesn't apply to anyone. since says no one is righteous, and God only delivers the righteous. Right? You need not fear that you're not perfectly righteous, and you still sin. Right? Look at the title of the psalm the title of the song, the, the small font-sized um, words before verse 1. Right, so who wrote this song? of David? When did he write this psalm? When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. So this is during a time when he was murderously pursued by Saul. Right, so when David wrote Psalm 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, He's talking, more than, he's talking about more than just himself, but he is definitely not talking less, uh, about less than himself. He is counting himself as a righteous man. At verse 19, it says, God delivers the righteous, and then look at verse 4. Who does God deliver? David wrote this about himself. I saw the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Verse 15 Uh, says the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry, right? The the righteous. Now, look at verse six. Who is God hearing or listening to? David again spoke about himself. This poor man, David cried, and the Lord heard him. So David is extending and applying his personal experience to all righteous men. Now, David, how can you count yourself as a righteous man? You committed adultery with Bathsheba. You murdered her, her her husband Uriah. How dare you count yourself a righteous man? How can you put yourself in that category, David? Well, the answer is threefold. Number one, David is righteous and blameless in the matter of Saul, which is the context of this psalm. Number two, David has sinned, but the general trajectory of his and the record of his life is largely that of godliness. He he's not perfect but he is a godly pious and god-fearing man and lastly and thirdly of course david is counted by god as righteous through faith and the son of david jesus christ now why am i telling you this i'm telling you this because it is quite easy to read these psalms and say to yourself well i am not the righteous or well i am not david and so this psalm doesn't apply to me and it says you're right you are not David, none of us are David, and none of us are perfectly righteous. But insofar as this psalm is concerned, there is no difference. You suffer just as innocently as David. Your life is overall characterized by as one of godliness as much as David's life. And you certainly share the same faith in Christ through which you are justified before God as David. This psalm In particular, this verse, verse 19, is about you and it is for you. And so we can draw three implications from this fact that this verse is about the righteous in Christ. It's about you if you're in Christ this morning. First of all, the the obvious implication is uh, if you, to those of you who are apart from Christ uh, this morning, this sermon is not for you. This sermon is not for you. I say this not with a sense of gloating or pride. I say this rather with grief and sadness. I could not be more glad and thankful to God who brought you here this morning. But the majority of this sermon is not directly applicable to you. So please don't walk away with a comfort that is not for you and think all is well for you. The promise is not for you. And the comfort is, the promise is not just therapeutic for you. Uh, Many may indeed be your afflictions. This part of the text may apply to you, but the promise of deliverance and comfort we're getting to, the second part of the text, is not for you. But maybe, paradoxically, the sermon is for you because this sermon will tell you how you can become the righteous so that you may indeed obtain the the second half of the verse, the promise of comfort in affliction. At this moment, You are outside of the blessing, but maybe through the means of this very sermon, as you walk out of this church today, you're changed into a new man, and this promise will be rightly yours. So don't just check out yet. Now, the second implication is equally important, and I speak to the saints who have been purchased and redeemed by Christ. To you, I say, never, ever, for any reason, under any circumstances, not for a single minute forget what God sees when he sets his eyes upon you. You are the righteous. You are very pleasant. You are precious in his eyes. You must know and keep this in central vision that God takes pleasure and God finds delight in you. God takes pleasure and finds delight in you. You, a mere mortal, someone not so famous, someone not so strong, not so healthy, you gladden and rejoice his heart. I don't yet hold my baby girl. She's still kicking about in her mother's womb. I cannot even imagine how happy I'm going to be. But that pleasure, that happiness of seeing your child falls infinitely short of God's gladness in seeing you. Psalm 33:5, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Zephaniah, th- uh, Zephaniah 3, 3:17. the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And you who have trusted in Christ, you are loved, cherished, and treasured by God. Does that not cheer your faint and feeble heart. Does that not uplift your downcast and distressed spirit? Does that not satisfy and strengthen your troubled and tumultuous soul? When Hannah was weeping in a temple, Elkanah, her husband, told her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Brothers, Is not the love of God more to you than all the sorrows of the world? And now, lastly, related to this point, we must conclude from from this very verse addressing the righteous that not all afflictions are God's retribution and revenge for sin. All afflictions are from God, but not all afflictions from God come from a heart of wrath and fury for the simple reason that God... Loves the righteous all the time. uh, But he sends them tribulations, trials, troubles, nonetheless. We must not make the error of Job's friends. There is no one-to-one correspondences and causality between sin and suffering. David suffered in the hands of Saul, and that has has nothing to do with his sin. If anything, it was because of his righteousness. The situation may be tough, the trial may be hard, but you have not lost God's love and pleasure. And there is an equally powerful temptation. And it's this, you're having a rough time. You know you're having a rough time. Uh, You have not been responding to the Lord well. Uh, Maybe you are bitter, you're angry, you're jealous, you're complainful, whatever it may be. And you know you're not responding well to the Lord. And then you begin to think maybe God is going to prolong this trial and lengthen your pain, just to smite you and spite you. But be watchful, brothers, and remember God loves the righteous and God loves you. And that's the first of our considerations, is the righteous, remember, it's the righteous in Christ that are in view in our text. Number two, consider what it is being emphasized. Consider what is being emphasized about the righteous. What do we learn about the righteous? It is their afflictions. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. A brief word on on the afflictions referred to here. If you read books one and two of, of the Psalms, you will see a lot of Psalms where the psalmist seeks God's protection from the wicked persecutors and haters. In other words, the afflictions come mostly from religious persecution. But the beauty of this psalm is its vagueness. It never, it's never said explicitly what these afflictions are exactly. Our psalm uses some very inclusive and general words like fears, troubles, and afflictions. In other words, the scope of the psalm is not narrowly restricted to one thing or one suffering, one affliction, but general, it's very general and wide. And the reason I'm telling you this is, is very simple. We as readers of this psalm in 21st century America free from religious persecution, but still faced with common human sufferings and fears, we can still feel free to, to apply this psalm to ourselves. We need not have a sense of distance with the psalmist's experience, so we need not hesitate to take hold of the promise herein. Now, verse 19 verse nineteen is freeing and relieving. Not just because it includes human suffering in general, it includes your suffering and my suffering. It is also freeing in another important sense, and it is this. There's a strange notion among the believers that Christians should not be grieved and troubled by afflictions. Even if they are, they need to handle it very well with pure joy and a complete victory. Uh, and when the sorrow does not go away, uh, when the grief deepens and decides to take up residence in the heart, then a sense of guilt and perplexity emerges. Right? If I'm a Christian, uh, why do I feel depressed? If God causes to rejoice always, and then again I say rejoice, right? I must be doing something wrong. And as you can probably tell, guilt is not a good catalyst for the joy for which God prepares. Us, right? You may sincerely believe uh, everything I'm saying uh, theoretically, right? But functionally, right? When grief strikes, you're still guilt written and confused. Right? Verse 19: Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Being a Christian doesn't make you superhuman. Regeneration does not somehow make you make you immune to the distress and adversities. Of life. Conversion does not deprive you of the ordinary human experience. The righteous Job suffered and he wept. He said, my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. He'll be more dramatic than that. The righteous David suffered and he wept. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. The righteous Jesus suffered and he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So be not harsh to yourself because verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Being a Christian doesn't make you sorrow free, but here's the good news. Being a born again Christian puts you in a position, the only position where you may truly rejoice and be glad where you have the resources and the ability to overcome affliction and face grief for God's glory and your own eternal good. If you are not a Christian, you cannot even begin to rejoice. But if you are a Christian, then you have all you need to rejoice, even if it may not seem like it. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And that is the second of our consideration. The righteous, alongside with the unrighteous, they're both often afflicted. It is but the lot God has assigned to all men, the righteous and the unrighteous. Number three, consider what it is said about these afflictions of the the righteous. Consider what it is said about these afflictions of the righteous. That is, the afflictions are many. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. What an unfortunate word. He could have said, the righteous have afflictions in this world. He could have said, several are the afflictions of the righteous. He could have said, you will have your fair share of grief in this world. He just has to say, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Job 14, 1. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Ecclesiastes 2.23, For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, the heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The afflictions of the righteous are many in variety. Just go through the Bible. Some lost their young children to death, see the widow in Luke 7. Some could not conceive a child, see Hannah. Some have disobedient children and caused endless grief, see Eli and Samuel. Some suffer poverty all their lives, see John the Baptist. Some had their great wealth stripped away from them, see Job. Some were persecuted and killed for their faith, see the apostles and the prophets. Some suffer chronic diseases, see Paul. Some were perfectly healthy, and their health suddenly broke down. See Job again. And some were exiled and carried to another country, never to return. See Daniel. Some married fools. See Abigail. Some were unjustly treated in the family. See Joseph. Some were betrayed by companions and friends. See David. Some were distrusted, opposed by the uh, elites, and nailed to a cross. See Jesus. Even as I look across this room, some of you have frustrating jobs or frustrating children or stubborn parents. Some of you are growing weaker and ill. Some of you have unfulfilled desires and expectations. Some of you have been betrayed and sinned against and abandoned by your former spouse. Some of you lost family to death to the king of terror. And some of you just have a hard life. And that is God's lot for you in this life. Some of you have lost joy and you don't even know where to begin uh, to get it back. Proverbs 14:10. the heart knows its bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. Uh, the afflictions of the righteous are many in variety. The afflictions of the righteous are many in number. Uh, count your afflictions, name them one by one, and then you lose point. You lose count at some point. Right, it's more than you care number. They're great in number. They're great in number all at the same time. You would love to take on these troubles of life one by one, but they come at you all together. Or maybe you would love to take on them all at the same time, but they come one by one, one after another in rapid succession. You just want a breather, right? A couple of peaceful days. Your afflictions, the afflictions of the righteous are great in effect. You have broken down into tears. You have laid sleepless at night. You have nightmares that leave you shook in the morning. You are way down and overcome by emotions. You carry a great burden wherever, wherever you go. You have grown weary and languished. You have no appetite. You have not called your family in a while. You go through the motion and nothing excites you or move you, moves you anymore. You talk less or you don't talk at all. You talk a lot to some people but they have trouble understanding, sympathizing or relating to you. You pray but nothing changes. So you wonder what God is really doing at this time. You hang on by a thin thread. You see no joy and no meaning in life and you ponder whether it's time to end it somehow. Despair, anxiety, dull grief and hopelessness describe and characterize you more and more. You start to envy other people because you think they had it easy and you wish you could be someone else. Paradoxically, you you think about the bitterness of life uh, habitually and regularly as if it's something enjoyable. It's an enjoyable, a sweet experience worth revisiting once in a while. You're confused. You don't know what is happening to you. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Is there a better way? to put it, right? Praise God, this verse doesn't end here. And so your afflictions don't end here, and so our sermon doesn't end here either. Point number two, the promise. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. But the Lord delivers him Out of them all. Let's again focus on on three things to impress this great and comforting promise to to our mind. Let me me help you appreciate this verse a little more. You can miss this very easily, but let me appreciate uh, let me help you appreciate it a little more. Now, first, this is the most important thing. This is the absolutely most important thing. Consider who it is that brings relief to the suffering saints. Consider who it is that brings relief to the suffering saints. And it's it's the Lord. Verse 19. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord is a deliverer who delivers us from our afflictions. And we must start here. Because this is the head or the rudder that will keep the rest of the ship moving in the right direction. This is the cornerstone that will keep the entire structure and building upright and strong. Always remember this. Your relief and comfort are going to come from ultimately nowhere else but the Lord. You look at the wrong place and look for ineffective remedies when you look away from or apart from the Lord for help. My wife and I have a couple friends, husband and wife. We love them a great deal. Uh, we would drive two hours to see them once in a while. They're big on mental health issues, finding a Christian therapist, uh, traveling and vacationing together, but they don't go to church. They don't read the Bible together. Uh, they have no presence of wise and mature Christians near them to counsel them and care for them. So we pray for them every Saturday night, more, more often than that, that they will go to church, They will stay in church. They will be helped by the church. Maybe you do need to find a professional Christian counselor. Maybe you do need to get out of the house and go somewhere to go on a vacation, change your scenery. And maybe you, you even need to take medication. But make no mistake, your help comes from the Lord. None of these things can replace or substitute Him. Look to God, And if needed, use other legitimate and lawful means. Look to the means, but don't look apart from the giver of these means. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about this Lord who has promised to deliver all his saints. I I want to tell you a few reasons why God is the only effective Savior. I'm going to paint a great and grand picture of God for you. The clearer and the bigger your vision of God is, and it can never be too great and too clear. Uh, the more comforting this promise affords. As Spurgeon said, he, he has learned to kiss every wave that throws him up against the rock of ages. Right? Let me now point you to the, that rock of ages in whom you can take refuge. So first of all, I want you to know that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Nothing comes to pass without God's explicit decree, design, and approval according to his goodwill and pleasure. In other words, every affliction of life comes from God. You need to know that, and God wants you to know that. He is responsible for your afflictions. Lamentation 3.21, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion count your afflictions, name them one by one, count your afflictions, and see what the Lord has done. How is this comforting? Well, it's comforting because God is always in control. The train has not gone off the rails, and the ship has not deviated from its designated route. This trouble has come from the Lord, and so from the Lord alone, Does the final and ultimate resolution come? And trust me, it does come. Secondly, you need to know that God is omnipotent. God is omnipotent. We like to scoff at a can-do attitude, right? No need to scoff here. God can do. And there's no affliction that is beyond his power to bring to an end. And there's no pain too overwhelming and overpowering in you for him to relieve. There is no sin too hideous and grievous for him to forgive in Christ. Your problem, your grief, your affliction may be too great, uh, too powerful for you. It may be taking up your whole world and your thoughts. And that's the only thing you can see, you can feel, and set your mind on. But it's not so with the Lord. It does not take up all of his world. It is not only the, it's not the only thing he can see or think or set his mind upon. At this very moment, while you're sitting here, listening and pondering, he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. He is watching over the smallest sparrow, sustaining the most repulsive pigeons, and supplying the needs of the weakest worm of the earth. He is tenderly preserving your life and granting you all things good and needed at this very moment. You need to know how great, how powerful this God is, especially in a time of trouble and on a day of sorrow. Thirdly, you need to know that God is compassionate. God is compassionate. Strength is necessary, but strength is not sufficient. Have you met someone who helped you but he helped you with uh, helped you with this uh, this condescending attitude and frustration and arrogance, right? The weeping and grieving saints may appreciate the solution to their trials, but they absolutely need compassion, grace, and kindness. And uh, you need not fear. God is omnipotent, and at the same time, God is tenderhearted. And my my wife and I like this song. It's called Jesus strong, and kind. As a combination, you don't see every, every single day. Right? We listen to it sometimes in the car, and I'm often moved by this song, and it says this. <coughs> Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy, I should come to him. Jesus said, uh, Jesus said if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength, I should come to him. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. Jesus said that if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross, he will come for me. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. You have a very powerful savior. And he is very kind. Number four, God is imminent. God is imminent. There is this ever-present temptation for saints in distress. You are apt to think, well, God is very far. God has distanced himself from me. God has left me in this mess. That's not true. Look at the verse right before our text. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 43 verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Deuteronomy 31 says, it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. God is not distant in suffering as some believe him to be. The Bible even goes so far as to say, it is as if he himself suffers in their suffering. Isaiah 63, 9. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. Maybe, maybe there's a passing cloud, but the sun is so bright. The sun is so there. The sun has not gone anywhere just because there are some gloomy clouds, right? You, you all believe that. And so your God is also ever near you. Uh, fifthly and finally, God is faithful. God is faithful. God said he will deliver you from all your afflictions. All your afflictions. How shall we know that this, this is true? We know because he has already given us a token of love, a testimony of salvation, and a proof of his comfort for us. He saved us. And if you are apart from, from Christ this morning, I speak to you now as well because this is the only way for you to be righteous. This is the only way for you to inherit this great promise of comfort and pain and sorrow. This is the only way for this verse to be completely and perfectly applicable to you. God has saved sinners like you and me. We were all born in sin and brought forth in iniquities. We were entangled and transgressions, and by nature children of wrath. We neither love the Lord our God with all our hearts and souls and strength, uh, nor do we love our neighbors as ourselves. We worship ourselves. We're obsessed with ourselves. Uh, we, we, uh, we're consumed with our own selfish interests. We love ourselves above God and above everything else. The wages of sin, the wages of this sin is death. And the end of such a way of life, is eternal destruction. But God, when we were afflicted with wrath and judgment in this life, God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, in the person of Christ. Uh, Like us, Jesus was truly human, born of a virgin under God's law. But unlike us, the son of God, Jesus never sinned. He is righteous, And he is perfect in and of himself. Not only is he righteous, he said he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, he he bore our iniquities. He owned up our sins. He stood in our place and he substituted for us. God's wrath was unleashed upon him on our behalf. Our sins and our death, they were given to him, his righteousness and his life, that were given to us, and on the third day after his death and burial, Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave, because death cannot take hold of him, a righteous man and an innocent sufferer. And he proclaimed forgiveness of sin everywhere, so that if anyone, young or old, male or female, Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, great sinners or little sinners, if anyone should repent of their sins and trust in him, his finished work, he will be saved. This is his token of love for you. He who delivered you from sin and hell, he will still deliver you from all your troubles in life. He delivered you from the biggest, the grandest possible trouble. Will he not also deliver you from the earthly sorrows and pain? And so consider then, Where your help must come from, it comes from the Lord. The sovereign, the omnipotent, the compassionate, the imminent, and the faithful God. He is a very sufficient Savior for you. Number two, consider what it is that the Lord will do for you. Consider what it is that the Lord will do for you. That is, God will deliver you. Verse 19, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. You need to have the sure expectation that God will deliver you in the hardest of days and the darkest of nights. This is not wishful thinking or daydreaming at all. That is called faith in this promise. I didn't say these words. You didn't come up with these words. God said these words. That If you trust in that, that is called faith. God is pledging here through his word that he absolutely will deliver you from whatever troubles and trials that seem just impossible for you right now. What is the gift of faith for if it is not for moments like this? You can and you must boldly take hold of this promise and you must tell yourself or really let the word of God tell you, God will deliver you. From it all. Now, a few things to be mindful of. First of all, you need to be mindful of the possible forms of deliverance from God. There is no, not one way of deliverance. God does not deliver everyone from every trouble in the exact same manner. God could be bring a complete end to your affliction by giving you exactly what you want at his appointed time. For example, Hannah was barren. She was painfully mocked by her rivals. He was grieved for childlessness. How did God deliver her? Well, by giving her many children, right? Job was afflicted and troubled. He wanted relief. And what did God do? God did exactly what he was asking for. God relieved him from his pain, and God gave him many possessions. You may want to marry, find a job, or have children. And God can deliver you by giving you these things at his time. But that is not the only way of deliverance. I think at times we we think this is the only or the best way of deliverance or happiness. uh, That we're reluctant to receive from God any other forms of deliverance. But God can also strengthen your faith and give you comfort uh, so sufficient that the affliction no longer triggers and brings much sorrow anymore. Where it is entirely possible that God could let you battle it out with the afflictions for the rest of your life on this side of eternity. While you battle, he always gives you grace and strength sufficient for the day to get through and and he brings the sweetest and ultimate deliverance on the last day of glory. Revelation 21, Verse 1, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I would like to think or speculate some of these saints cried all the way to glory. And when the divine hand touched them, grief becomes foreign, sorrow becomes distant, pain is bygone, they weep no more. And that's how the Bible ends, and that's how eternal glory begins for you. So be mindful of the forms of God's deliverance. Be mindful of what God's deliverance may look like for you. And secondly, you should be mindful also of the timing of God's deliverance. We have an instant gratification problem. Understandably, we want the time of deliverance to be as close to the time when afflictions began. right? Of course, afflictions are pain, pain. It's not wrong to hope for relief to come as soon as possible. It is not sinful. It is not evil. However, as all saints can possibly testify, God's agenda is often an entirely different one than ours. Right? Deliverance and comfort will come, but they're not Amazon packages, and they may not come today. Right? And, and so it requires our patient Endurance, perseverance and waiting. Waiting is the humble forsaking of our own need for instant gratification and our submission to God's timing of relief and fulfillment is the humble forsaking of our own need for instant gratification and our submission to God's time of relief and fulfillment. Waiting. Waiting is a great virtue. In the Christian life. Waiting is often necessary, uh, is a necessary pathway to comfort and joy. Waiting is the best lesson in the department of sanctification in the school of Christ. Isaiah 30:18. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And finally, be mindful of our responses when God does. Deliver. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Job glorified God after he was restored. Hannah glorified God after she was given a son. Joseph glorified God after he was reunited with his family. Paul glorified God, being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Give glory to God when he delivers you. And our final consideration, consider what it is said about God's deliverance. Consider what it is said about God's deliverance. That is, God delivers us from all our troubles. Verse 19. Look at verse 19. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Here is the crescendo of this sweet melody of God's promise. Here is the pinnacle of this marvelous divine pledge. If you have been uplifted by this promise, God takes you even higher and even further. It is as if it did not just please him to just say, but the Lord delivers them. He must add, the Lord delivers him out of them all. God is saying to you, Name a trouble in your life, nay, pile upon me all the troubles of your life, pile upon me all the troubles of all the saints, everywhere, at all ages, I will deliver them from it all, without exception, without fail. Now, some final note, as I conclude, speaking to different groups of people in this sanctuary. First of all, if you are are suffering as a believer... You are a member of this church. Find a fellow member in this church whom you love and trust, with whom you click well, as they say, and whom God has brought alongside with you. We are called to weep with those who weep. We are not designed to weep alone. If you are a member of this church, and someone finds you and confides in you, you should be very thankful. To God, because He might have just made you His means an instrument through which God will minister His comfort to another. Be quick to listen, quick to pray, slow to speak. Listen, pray, hug, if that's your thing. I like a firm handshake, more, unless you are my wife. Read God's word together and then repeat. Right? Consistency matters. Five minutes of contact every day is probably better than two hours of contact once a month. Now, if you are a suffering Christian and you are not a member of this church, I think that's a fair share of the people here today. I really strongly recommend you to become a member of a gospel preaching, a loving local church. I'm not saying this because I am big on church membership nor because I think it's a matter of obedience to God, even though both of these things are true. And it's definitely not because I think church membership can magically take away your suffering or grief where I'm just trying to expand this church to as many people as possible. I'm saying it because church membership forms or puts you in a position to form strong bond and connection with those whom God may use to minister comfort and joy to you. And thus... It puts you in a good position to receive the regular care uh, that you may need in a time of sorrow. You may think your friends with, with people in this church is fine without being a member by coming here two or three times or every week for, uh, for the month. And that might be true for you subjectively. But the camaraderie and the fellowship and the friendship and the relationship you forge as a member of this church is going to be very different entirely. Maybe for some of you, church membership is the first step of comfort and deliverance. And finally, if you are suffering as an unbeliever, you may be seeking all kinds of remedies, self-help, positive thinking, therapy, exercise, new hobbies, entertainment, more friendship, or even alcohol or drugs, or sexual pleasures. Maybe you have even heard the therapeutic gospel that Jesus came primarily to make you feel less depressed and anxious and to make you feel better about everything in life. Friends, you know there's only one way. There's only one solution. Repent and believe in Jesus, his righteous life for sinners, his atoning death for sinners, and his triumphant resurrection for Sinners, this is the only way for you to be put in the position where effective and enduring comfort for your soul may possibly come. The only way for you, for your suffering to truly end. Or Matthew eleven, twenty-eight, Jesus' words ring true still today. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So come to Jesus in repentance and faith afflicted saint to Christ draw near your savior's gracious promise here his faithful word you can believe that as your days your strength shall be your faith is weak your foes are strong and if the conflict should be long the lord will make the tempter flee that as your days your strength shall be when called to bear your weighty cross or sore affliction pain and loss or deep distress or poverty, still as your days, your strength shall be. So sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle is fierce, but the victory is won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, your strength shall be. So remember Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Let's pray. Lord, you have so graciously and uh, lovingly provided this great comfort through your word, through your great promise to us this day. Lord, we love Christ, we trust in him, and he is the token of love and testimony of your kindness and deliverance to us. And he has delivered us from the greatest trouble of our life, even wrath, condemnation, and hell so that we may be safe and secure in him. We thank you for your great love and kindness to us in promising to us that you will deliver us from all our troubles. I pray that the saints this morning has been helped, edified, and I pray that your spirit will now impress this, this truth, this promise upon their minds, that all their days, even as they carry the great burden of troubles and sorrows and afflictions in their heart, they will equally carried the weight of this great promise upon their souls. I pray for those who are apart from Christ this morning. They have heard the only way to righteousness, Who enduring a lasting comfort. I pray that they will look to Christ and be saved, we pray. Amen.